This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to the Hindu on Books podcast. I'm your host Jacob Koshi. What are black holes? Mainstream physics sees them as the universe's ultimate agents of death. After all, what crosses over beyond the rim of the black hole or its event horizon as it is known disappears forever even all pervasive light cannot escape it science also shows that the universe is littered with billions upon billions of enormous black holes capable of swallowing entire galaxies but are they really the universe's cosmic executioners not necessarily suggests carlo rovelli one of the world's leading theoretical physicists and prolific author of extremely accessible and thoughtful popular science books on modern physics in his latest book white holes professor rowelly discusses well white holes they may be the yin to the black holes as yang or as rowelly describes it in tolkienesque terms the transformation of gandalf the grey to gandalf the white in this podcast we also talk about the role of scientific speculation how scientific progress requires abandoning comforting assumptions how new universes may be born and whether we need to reevaluate our commonly held notions of past and future welcome to the show professor rovelli you're a, you're a active practicing scientist but you also write a lot of uh, science popularization books so from what i have seen before is many scientists write great science books but you know they that's usually when they have stopped uh, you know being active uh, scientists so to say so i'm just very curious what motivates you to do both simultaneously is this something that you've always made a conscious effort to or is this something that you've a practice that you've adopted later in life just curious about this it it happened later in life um actually i started writing uh, popular books uh only my 50s i had some pressure before people say why don't you write but i always said no 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 i i have to put science first i want to do science and then um then the books came a little bit naturally and i found myself uh, writing more and uh, i struggle and juggle with the problem of dividing my time between different things i want to do uh sometimes it does not work very well because uh, uh both things take time away from the other one uh right now i've written this book and i want to do not to write for a while i want to add the, the urgent things things i feel urgent into science i want to put my soul there okay because i was curious does um you know does writing for a popular audience help you clarify certain ideas in your own mind like could you give some examples of that it does a lot and uh, this last book is as a particularly good example because uh, we with my colleagues my students my colleagues we've been working on this idea of white hole for now several years the idea is quite complex actually uh, not in its main main lines which i draw in the book but once you go into the details there's a lot of aspect of it and uh forcing myself to write it 
and to say, well, that's what we're studying. This is where we are, uh, has been a good, uh, a good exercise of stepping back and uh, getting back to the big questions. Because uh, a lot of the technical work of a scientist is not the big questions, is the details. Uh, but the details, uh, to be lost in the details is the most stupid thing that can happen, right? I mean, details have to be worked out, and they are long and painful and complicated. Uh, but where really the advances come is when you... Can work out the details, but there's some some you can you can step back and look look at the big picture. So it's it's a good exercise to do. It is a wonderful exercise for me to try to explain. Uh, I, I think I understand something, and then I write it down and say, "Well, come on, this is incomprehensible." I mean, my uh, uh, my sister wouldn't understand it. Um, I don't have a sister. So what is the what is the core of the story here? Uh, so I write it a different manner. And, uh, and and this, I go various times through this process, and at some point I'm happy. I say, well, that seems incomprehensible, but that feeds back to my science because, uh, because understanding is what we need. In fact, uh, you know, just to push this point a bit, you know, in your, in your book, you actually make a reference to Galileo's uh, discourse, I mean, his famous book. And uh, one thing I really, I mean, what is very Interesting about that style, I, I mean, I, I don't know if it was the popular style in Italy that time, where, you know, he has three different characters uh, speak about three different, you know, one is the regular guy, one is the, the establishment, and one is his own view. And, you know, he takes his ideas out to the, you know, to the larger population. And there's, there's a section in your book, too, wherein, you know, you sometimes address criticisms by the you know, by the establishment in your field. So do you see popular science books as also tools in which, you know, you get to address, you know, peers in your field, uh, you know, who might not agree with your ideas? Or is it just, do you just restrict it to battling it out in academic papers, so to say? No, it's definitely the first. And uh, 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 Galileo, it's a... Uh, one of the greatest scientists, and uh, it's also a spectacular writer. Uh, his Italian prose is very, very beautiful. Uh, and his books are very um, very argumentative, very convincing, very wonderfully. Uh, and in fact, they, if I, one could put it, there's one book, The Dialogue by Linnea, that convinced humankind that the Earth is moving, right? So, uh, so he's the one who convinced. I mean, Copernicus did the big technical job, uh, and then sort of other people contributed. But uh, he's the one that really went out to to Europe at the time first, and then the rest of the uh, of the planet to convince that that's a better perspective. And I, with all the humble possible, uh, I'm not comparing myself to Galileo by very far, of course. But that's what I'm trying to do. So I am not only going out to the people and say, look, there's something very interesting here, uh, look how beautiful it is, but I'm also very much talking to my colleagues and say, look, uh, I know you have that perspective, but look at this other perspective. Uh, and uh, not just, don't, don't worry about the calculation of the details if you want, you can just look at the papers, at the, uh, at the scientific papers, uh, but look at this perspective. That's exactly what Galileo was doing. 
um, the overall story. So when I write, in fact, I write always having in mind two readers. One is uh, uh, somebody who knows absolutely nothing about science. Zero. Okay. So I, I, I want a story from the beginning that makes sense. Of it. So I take away all the, all the details. And the other is my colleagues who knows everything. And for, for the colleague also, I take away all the details because the colleagues already know the details, right? <laughs> and I say, look, this is a, this I think is a, it's the best way. And in fact, even the books I have written about uh, established science, like when I describe general relativity or when I talk about quantum mechanics, they are the perspective on these theories, which I think it's most interesting. So they are not just popularization book by book. They're books that try to um, argue for a point of view, which is not just mine. It's other point of view, of course, uh, but it is a point of view. Do you think this is increasingly, is this practice more relevant now to even as a professional scientist? Because at least for the last 60, 70 years, the trend has been that I mean, the practice is that scientists only publish their work in scientific journals. And I guess once they win a Nobel Prize or something like that, you know, or if that, that's when their work kind of reaches out to the popular audience in a big, broad way. But right now, the, the modes of communication have changed. There is a lot of social media. There is publish, publications and print is not the only way people come to know of new ideas. Do you think that increasingly more scientists must actually spell out or write about their work to popular audiences almost simultaneously with, you know, their academic publications just for the benefit of scientific ideas in itself? No, I think that uh, there is a room for this, but there is a room for for not doing that too much either. And I... Things change, but uh, this uh, oscillation of the academy being sort of closing itself and solving the problem within and opening up to a, to a general conversation has always been there in, uh, in the history of science. Darwin, uh, who changed our view of humankind profoundly because he convinced all of us that, uh, you know, um, we and the butterflies have common grand-grand-grandfather, grand-grand-grandmother. So this is shocking. It's wonderful, beautiful, right? We, we, we're cousin with the butterflies and, um, and, and even with the plants. We, we, we really are cousin with common ancestors. He wrote a book and a remarkable, he didn't write technical papers in, in specialized journal trying to convince the biologists. They were biologists of his time, but he didn't address them. He addressed the people, the civilization, the old people of culture, whoever wants to write his book. And his book, which is beautiful, beautiful book, by the way, Darwin's book is fantastic. It's very well argumented. It's very well, um, it's slowly going through all the arguments uh, and clearly written, um, with a general person of culture in mind, like Galileo book. Um, so also Einstein, Einstein wrote some, uh, some, uh, uh, few popular science things and, uh, uh some, uh, were just, uh, you know, at the popular version of his main idea. But he wrote things which would clearly he was addressing his view of the theory for his colleagues. And uh, so I think there's room for both. Uh, one shouldn't exaggerate in uh, talking to the public. And so the point is not to 
call the public to val- uh, uh, verify or, or establish the validity of your idea. That's not the point. Uh, because uh, evaluating ideas requires knowledge, requires competence, requires details. Uh, uh, but uh, having ideas going out, it's important. What I think it's a risk is to sell um, hypotheses for established results. That is a mistake. So I, I, in my uh, Whitehall book, uh, I, I start off by saying, I don't know if Whitehall exists. This is an idea. This is a perspective. This is something you can, uh, okay. And uh, uh, if somebody writes a book saying, we have discovered that there are extra dimensions. We have discovered that the universe is made by strings. We have discovered that there is supersymmetry. That's bad. That's bad because we haven't discovered these things. We are speculating about these things. So don't cheat the public, but be honest to the public and don't hesitate to involve the public in the fact. Tell the public there's a discussion going on. That, I think, is the is best strategy, seems to me, at least. So just getting a little more, you know, to the to the book at hand. So I'm, you know, you discuss a lot about about time and its nature. So I just wanted to understand something for my own uh, clarity. It's that, you know, when we think in terms, I mean, when I think of time, it is I, I imagine a clock or time is something which is, you know, which happens between the space of, you know, between second one and second two. I mean, that is how we always see time as a passage. But we also see, but as physicists like you and you in your book also explain, time is influenced by gravity. I mean, and gravitational forces at different points in the universe affect its passage. Its passage is affected at event horizons, etc. How does a, a regular guy in, in 2023, how should we see time? Is it like a physical object that can be pressed? Is it like a like a rubber band with, with elasticity and properties like that? Uh, or is it something that we sh- should be seen in an abstract sense? How has the perception of how should we understand time now in, you know, in this day and age? Well, first of all, there is something very concrete that we have discovered, very factual. And one of these is that time does not pass at the same speed for everybody. And uh, uh, the fact that it sounds strange for us is just simply we were not used to it. But if we were used to, uh, for instance, for for faster travel uh, with spaceship uh, uh, at great speed, we would be used to the fact that, uh, you know, um, you have your little brother and then you go for a trip, uh, with you go to, to, to some other star, you come back, and your little brother is older than you. And that would be our normal experience. And so we would not have this idea that there's just one time for everybody because we would directly experience the fact that uh, uh, for my little brother, 10 years has passed. Uh, for me, who was traveling, just uh, six months has passed. So we would uh, experience that. And that is a clear-cut discovery of modern science, which is factual. Okay, it's just the, the Earth is round. If you travel east, you come back to the same point. Um and this would change very much our understand our, our feeling about time. Okay, so at the light of that, 
how should we think about time? Well, not as this uh, uniform ticking thing that the, uh, that the clock uniformly capture, but as something more flexible. And the best way to think about it, uh, and that is Einstein, Albert Einstein's major contribution, is a little bit like you said. I think it's like a rubber band. Some, somewhere is more stretched, somewhere is less stretched. So you should think of it as a physical, as something physical? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or more precisely, what is it that determines that uh, time goes faster somewhere and slower somewhere? Uh, it's a real something there, something physical. It's like, uh, you know, the electric field. All around us, we don't see it, but there's an electric field, a magnetic field. And there's also a time field, <laughs> which was Einstein called the gravitational field, um, which is really, uh, I think, visualizing it in your hand, like a stretching rubber thing, it's very good. In fact, that's how Einstein uh, uh, described it. In his mind, there was this, uh, he used the idea of, we're immersed in a huge molluscus, a jellyfish that can squeeze him, <laughs> um, which is time itself, which is, it's, uh, it tell us how much time passes. So it's because he had this famous analogy of a, a heavy ball placed on a rubber sheet, and that is how space-time is distorted. So I can understand space-time as, I mean, it's abstract itself, but I can see that as a sheet. but. So do you see time? I mean, that means time should have little particles like, I mean, just like there is gravitons or even as you say, would it have constituent particles too, like timeons or, you know, pieces that constitute time? Do you see it in that a physical sense in that way or is it something a little more complicated than that? I think theory, uh, you don't have particles of time, uh, but you have this uh, entity which is space-time, which is, uh, you really have to see as, as an entity, as equation, it stretches, it stretches it. And uh, so, for instance, if there is a mass, as you say, uh, it distorts space, but it also distorts time. The closer you get to the mass, uh, the more time slows down. And the more the mass is uh, it's, um, it's compressed, so you can get closer and closer to it, the more time slows down. In fact, so much so that near, if you go near a black hole, time is enormously distorted. Which means that if you're there, suppose you're very close to black hole, and then you look back at Earth, you see everything happening super fast. So uh, every minute you see one year. So you see the future very very rapidly. You see what's going to happen tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. And vice versa, if you are on Earth and you look at somebody near near a black hole, you see it moving very very slowly. Everything is going extremely slowly. So that's time distortion. And the best way to, as I said, the best way to think about it is just. Uh, thinking space and time as an entity by them by themselves. Now, careful because that's Einstein theory. Hundred years ago, hundred ten years ago, we know. In fact, Einstein himself knew that is limited because it does not uh, include uh, the quantum effects, and we have all reason to expect that quantum effects are part of the story. The quantum effects are very teeny, but they're important. And they become important inside the black hole. They become important uh, near the Big Bang. And uh, if you keep in mind quantum effects, things are granular. So space is granular. It's not really a continuous. It's really like it had, if it had an atomic structure. And time is granular. So you can have a continuous time. You have jumps 
individual jumps, very, very tiny. So we don't perceive them. But this uh, discrete, granular aspect of space is time. And careful, we are not, we are now in the speculation, what we think should happen if we bring Einstein theory and quantum mechanics together. Um, but in, in, and that's been the work of my life, trying to combine these two part of the story. And uh, uh, what I and a good part of the community expect is that uh, um, what the quantum aspect of time in is a discreteness. So there are not tempons, I wouldn't call them like, them, like you, but individual time steps. And space is granular. It's like quantum space, like atoms of space. But careful, they're not moving in space. They are space themselves. So space is a collection of all these atoms of space, how they are connected to one another. So, but, I mean, the, I mean, because it is science, I mean, the true test of a theory, as they say, is always experiment and experimental verification. So how do we go about verifying something like this? It takes time. And, uh, uh, for instance, Einstein theory had very few uh, uh, supporting elements of evidence for many years. In the last decades, they have exploded. Einstein theory predicted black holes. And uh, for a very long time, nobody took this prediction very seriously. It seems such a strange thing. There's a hole in the sky. Everything can fall in this hole. You can have a, in the sky a little sphere and everything falling forever. What's very, very strange. Uh, but actually, uh, we now have complete evidence of these things. We have even a picture of these things. We, we, we know how they behave, and they behave exactly like the theory predicts. So um, slowly, uh, the theory was confirmed with more and more uh, element of evidence. Now, when we go beyond Einstein theory and uh, include quantum mechanics, uh, we, for the moment, we don't have any good element of evidence supporting uh, the ideas, but we have a theory, we have predictions. We, and, and one of the predictions is white holes. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So, um, or more precisely, quantum mechanics allows the black hole to sort of bounce back and becomes a white hole. So I expect, I hope, that in a certain number of years, uh, the destiny of white hole will be the same destiny of black hole. So to go from a theoretical conclusion by, by what we know to something established by some detection, maybe to make a machine and detect one of these white holes going by, uh, I expect them to be very small. Uh, or with a white hole, we explain some phenomenon in the sky. For instance, dark matter is a, it's a mysterious thing which is not explained, but might be explained by white holes. So, um, science is science because uh, it relies on empirical confirmation, predictions which are confirmed. Uh, and that's what distinguishes it from fantasy. So, do you expect you know, instruments like, for instance, LIGO or, I mean, basically telescopes in space, or do you think any of these instruments uh, have the capability to discover evidences of white holes, just as they, uh, you know, just as black holes were found, you know, using this very sensitive interferometers? Do you expect some success for white holes same way? Yes, I hope so, um, that some kind of instruments uh, could do that. We might need to 
to build new kind of instruments. In fact, I'm, that's part of my work today is in that direction, trying to think of what kind of instruments. Um, look, when I was a student, um, one of the predictions of Einstein equations was uh, uh, gravitational waves, namely that it's a, uh, it's a rubber shift, uh, which is uh, space could oscillate and make waves itself, waves of space. And uh, some colleagues, um, that was 30, 40 years ago, said, okay, let's detect this. Let's make a machine that detects them. And uh, they built LIGO. And uh, uh, there's an Italian version, Italian-French version of it. There's an Indian version of it. It's an Indian LIGO. There is a, a number of, of, uh, of, of these machines. And they were completely different machines. Nobody before thought of building, you know, laser four kilometers, uh, super, super cold and, and, and stable, isolated from the rest, uh, then make an interferometer with two of these and, and measure very detailed things. It seemed a crazy machine to build. Completely new conception, completely new idea. It worked. I mean, they said uh, they're going to do it in five, 10 years. It actually took 30 years. Uh, but they did it. They all got the Nobel Prize. They allowed the discovery of um, gravitational waves. And in fact, the gravitational waves they discovered are produced by black holes, by two black holes falling into one another. So they provided one more evidence for, for the existence of, 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 of black holes. So it's a long process, uh, but sometimes it's a very successful process and it's worthwhile trying, I think. So just to come back to the you know, to, to the heart of your book, I mean, so from what I understand is, you know, a, a white hole is a black hole, but with time running in reverse, as you describe in your book, uh, you know, like a movie running in a different direction. So uh, in, in the reverse direction. Uh, but I mean, is that all that is there to it? So, uh, I mean, how how would you explain this idea to a more... Uh, you know, to a general audience as to why understanding what a white hole is, is important. I mean, could you uh, explain what does it really clarify about, you know, the universe and life? Yeah, well, there are two things. First of all, uh, where does the problem come from? Where is the problem? I mean, what, what, what are we trying to solve here? And the problem is super simple. Um, Okay, we, we have seen the black holes, we've taken picture, we have all this evidence of them, we see the macro that spiral around them and falls inside. There's all this stuff that falls inside the black hole, okay? Uh, now here comes a kid and says, uh, oh, okay, so all this macro falls inside, where does it go? Okay, what happened to it? Um, Jack, suppose suppose you, you and I fall into a black hole, what happened to us next? I mean, suppose we're not squeezed because we would be squeezed by the force and everything, but if we could resist the squeezing, where do we go? So that's the question. And uh, uh, it's, it's a crucial question because, you know, we thought we lived in a universe which is just a, 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 an expanse uh, uh, space, but it's not. It's an expanse space with holes. So we want to know what's in the hole. We're curious. We are like monkeys or, or cats. You ever seen a cat when you walk in a, in a new room and it finds a hole? It's just super, super curious. It wants to know that. Maybe there's a Little mouse, something interesting. Holes are interesting. So I want to know what is inside. And uh, um, it's very mysterious because uh, what could happen? I mean, inside things just disappear, uh, eaten by, you know, 
monster that eats everything, or they go into different universes, but you know, different universes created by black hole. One can do strange speculations, and in fact, the answer, the possible answer to this question, what comes out from a from studying the quantum properties of gravity, and 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 the, the story I describe in my book is that what might happen is much easier. Things fall, fall down, and then they bounce back. Okay, when you, when a when a ball uh, falls on the ground, then it bounces up, uh, and when it bounces up, it it repeats the same path that was when it was going down, but but with a reversed velocity, in a sense backward in time, in this sense backward in time. So um, it turns out, and that was a, what excited us, that the coming out, of the bouncing out. Uh, is also predicted by Einstein equation. So Einstein equation gives the possibility for things coming out, and that's what is called a white hole. It already had a name, uh, a white hole. Uh, the strange point is a bounce. Okay, the bounce is not predicted by Einstein theory. So is it possible? It turns out that quantum mechanics makes this bounce possible. So we use the equation of quantum gravity, loop quantum gravity, uh, our theory of quantum and Einstein together. And this equation suggests that it's very well possible that uh, the, the squeezing inside the black hole is not infinite. It stops at some point, so stopped by quantum phenomena. And these make it bounce. It's just like there's a maximum quantum pressure so that the black hole itself bounces and becomes a white hole. Now, that's the, the question and its possible solution. Now you're asking, what does it tell us about space and time? Well, tell us something major, I think, because if it's so, it confirms this idea that um, space and time can quantum jump, the quantum jumps of, of space-time. And if you think for a moment, this means that we have to change our understanding of what space-time are, because this is a, it's a quantum jump, but the, the usual quantum jump that in quantum mechanics we treat regularly, which are in our technology, in our phones, in the, in our machines. These are quantum jumps of matter. In 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 in, they don't do anything to space and do anything to time. It's just an electron is moving and binging, so it appears somewhere else. But here, is space itself that quantum jump is a shape of space itself that quantum jump. So that means that we have to think differently what is space, think differently what is time. Time is not this uniform thing. It's not even this uniform local thing that Einstein told us. It's something more complicated. Right? It's something that works in little quantum jumps. Uh, as you yourself at some point suggested at the beginning of this uh, chat. So that's a very interesting idea. So you know when a you know when a ball is bouncing back. I mean, it hits the ground, kind of compresses for a bit, but what comes up is. I mean, to what we observe, it's the same ball. So in this sense, when something has gone inside a black hole and is emerging out as out of a white hole, is it the same object or has it fundamentally transformed itself? And can we tell, is something, is something going into a black hole or is something coming out of a white hole? How do we differentiate between these two things? Um, it's the same... Uh... Uh, what comes out is the same as what went in, almost. Uh, I mean, to some extent, it's the same. To some extent, it's different. Uh, if you think of the ball, uh, the ball that bounces up, it's the same as the ball that went down, but it has less velocity, it has less energy, 
In fact, typically, a ball that starts at some height, it bounces, doesn't go back to the same height. But it has less power inside it, less, less energy, okay? Where is this extra energy gone? Well, in the bounce, it uh, dissipates. It hits the ground a little bit. And by hitting the ground, it loses energy. So what happened in a, a black-white transition, black-hole-to-white-hole transition, it's uh, also similar. And that's why uh, studying the process is complicated because there are, there are various aspects of it and uh, uh, that should be taken into account. And uh, so uh, what happens is also in this bounce, there is, uh, during this process, uh, there is energy which is dissipated. So the final, uh, what comes out from the white hole has less energy than uh, the initial energy that went in. And the energy was dissipated. And in fact, uh, the way it's dissipated was studied by Stephen Hawking. It's his great contribution to physics. He was able to show that um, black holes emit heat. Uh, they're hot. Hawking radiation. Exactly. It's a Hawking radiation. And uh, nobody has ever observed the Hawking radiation, but it's very convincing. His calculations are very good. They've been repeated in all sorts of ways. Uh, uh, so theoretical physicists are all basically all convinced that Stephen Hawking was right and that there is this radiation. So this radiation is like dissipation. It's like what uh, eats away some of the energy of the ball. Uh, so the what goes in loses energy through the Hawking radiation and then comes out from the white hole with much, much less energy. Um, but it's still the same stuff, so to say. It's still the same information, technically. So the information that you fall into the black, you throw in the black hole is not lost. Uh, there's a, a discussion in the community. It's called the black hole information puzzle. I mean, if you, if you throw some information inside, uh, what happens? Is that lost forever? No, it's not lost forever. It can all be recovered either through the radiation or through what comes out from the, from the white hole. So just to uh, see if I've understood it enough, you know, correctly, I mean, is it possible that, you know, for example, you and I, we are having this conversation right now, but is it that, you know, at some point we are actually inevitably progressing very slowly towards, you know, uh, towards, you know, uh, you know, towards some, towards being sucked into a black hole. I mean, that's how I would imagine is the ultimate end of the world. But is it also possible that, you and I have this, I mean, this conversation that we're having now is actually some version of a previous conversation, some previous universe, but minus a little bit of, uh, I don't know, Hawking radiation or energy. Is is that a way to think about it? Um, there is a very interesting analogy here, uh, which is that um, the same theory, quantum gravity, loop quantum gravity, that predicts this bounce of the white hole, the black hole becoming a white hole. It also um, tells that a universe that would be uh, compressing and falling in itself would bounce and generate something which is very much like the Big Bang. So uh, it's not the same physics, but it's very similar. It's a quantum pressure. Uh, it's possible. It's very, it's, it, we don't know, but it's a perfectly plausible possibility that the Big Bang the start of, you know, that thing that happened uh, 14 billion years ago, uh, it's also bounce of that sort. And in fact, the equation to describe one, the equation to describe the other, the black to white uh, hole and, and the bouncing universe are very similar equations. 
So um, we might, you and I, be coming out from this huge bounce uh, of a previous universe uh, through uh, what looks to us like a Big Bang. Yeah. So in, I see that as a, it's a little more optimistic uh, view of the, I mean, to answer this whole question of the purpose of our existence, because a black hole, I mean, black holes would signify a kind of ultimate death. I mean, ultimately, if all the universe were to go into a black hole, that's pretty much the end of everything. So this seems to be a little more positive interpretation of things. That is, That means that whatever version of life is, it, it is always continuous. I mean, it, it never ends, right? I mean, it is like a, we are permanently moving out and inside and outside of black, of black holes and white holes as. Yeah, Stephen Hawking, um, who already was thinking before dying, he was thinking precisely of what was going to happen inside the black hole. He was considering the idea, uh, that it's, um, it's not the end of everything. And I think he was right. Um, he used to give uh, his very last uh, popular lectures he was giving. He was telling people, you know, when in your life you feel everything is dark and you're falling into a black hole, don't worry. You come out even from black holes. <laughs> so uh, I think nothing is forever. And uh, and the black holes, uh, we, we studied in books, the black holes is forever. Once you're falling, it's uh, forever. I think that's wrong. Uh, I think things, black holes are not forever. They have a finite lifetime, very long, but finite lifetime, nothing is forever. And uh, when they mutate, quantum mutate, quantum jump into white hole, uh, you, you, even if you're trapped inside there, you come out. And the beautiful story, uh, the beautiful aspect of the story is that imagine you and I could go into the black hole, right? And um, of course, if we concretely would do that, we would be squeezed by, this, by the, the forces there. Uh, so we would die. But suppose we could survive somehow. We have a super, super duper kryptonite <laughs> um, uh, uh, cage around us that protect us. Uh, we would go through the bounce and come out in the white hole. And uh, we would come out millions of years and billions of years in the future for the people on Earth who would be watching us. They have to wait for very, very long for seeing us back. But for us, Time is much, much shorter because this black hole is this time distortion. So we go in, in a few minutes we go to the center, in a few minutes we come out, and bingo, in a few minutes we are far, far in the future. So that's what the process black white hole is. It's a shortcut to the future. Yeah. But then doesn't this also open up a different kind of uh, reality for the lack of a better word? Which is, uh, we are talking always in terms of one black hole and one black hole in you know in the kind of conversation we're having but there are billions of them and you know this process could be happening all the time so are there possibilities that one black hole is somehow interacting with another white hole and their consequences are kind of intermingled into one another so do these possibilities also come out from are there is there math or equations to suggest Ideas such as these, yeah, uh, there is, and 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 these things have, uh, have been studied, and uh, one can study what happened when a white hole encounter a black hole, or when a black hole encounter um, uh, another a white hole encounter another white hole, 
And uh, uh, we do have the mathematics for describing these things. And uh, there is a phys- physics that, uh, uh, that happens. In fact, um, the gravitational waves that have been detected, even the first one that was detected, these people who got the Nobel Prize for this detection, were caused by two black holes merging, uh, for, for colliding and, and falling into each other. And that's a particularly simple case because uh, it's simple. To, well, simple. I mean, if you do all the mathematics, it's tricky. In fact, it's doing with big computers. Uh, but intuitively simple. If you have a black hole, another black hole, what happens is that they fall into one another and they, fall, they create a bigger black hole. Now, what's exactly inside that bigger black hole that had two, uh, two fathers or two mothers? I don't know. Uh, inside, it might be complicated. In fact, we are not very sure of the shape inside. Is that two different tunnels? Or one tunnel that is, uh, how does it think about it? But from the outside, we know, we know what happened. We just, we also sort of know what happened when a black hole meets a white hole, uh, because the situation is not really symmetric, uh, because of technical reasons of stability I don't want to go into. So what we expect is that it's a black hole that wins. Okay. So it's, it's up the white hole. <laughs> oh, okay. So then, but, I understood them as very symmetric forms of each other. So, uh, I mean, they just, so wouldn't one, wouldn't they kind of, kind of balance each other out in some way? I mean, that's how I understand it. Yeah. The black, white, uh, all themselves are symmetric. You're right. Uh, but what is around is not symmetric because, uh, um, you see, uh, a, a black hole le- left by itself emits Hawking radiation. Okay, so what's going on is that the, the mass of the black hole is concentrated, and as time goes on, it spreads around the, with the Hawking radiation. Okay, so if you really time reverse it, you have a white hole, but you have also uh, radiation falls in, falling in. And in the universe, there's no radiation coming in. <laughs> there's no, uh, so the past is special. Uh, the, the physics is, it doesn't know which one is the past and which one is the future, but the, the universe does. The universe is, is, in the past was different than the universe in the future. The universe of the future is more spread out. The universe of the past is more concentrated. So that's why we see a direction of time. Yeah. So in fact, that's something that I wanted to get into. I mean, you devote a certain amount of time in your book to explain that the whole idea of past and present and you know you've given this analogy of the two water tanks and the and the wave that where one passes through the un- another so uh is this i mean could you explain if you have uh kind of restated the the, the second law of thermodynamics in or you know entropy is that is it the same idea or are you proposing something uh, different? So to speak? Okay. It's the same idea. It's the same idea. Uh, what I think is the case uh, is that uh, uh, it's really the second law of thermodynamics uh, beyond everything which is time-oriented. So uh, there are many things that seem time-oriented to us, right? We remember the past. We don't remember the future. We can decide what to do tomorrow. We cannot decide what to do yesterday. And so on. We have an effect. It's after the cause. If you throw a stone on a lake, the the, the effect is the waves. But the waves is after uh, the stone goes to the lake, not before. So there's all this time orientation, um, and they seem all different. Uh, they seem all unrelated, but it's all the same 
thing and is captured fundamentally by the second law of thermodynamics. And the second law of thermodynamics, in turn, is just the fact that the past was special. Uh, uh, not because the laws of physics are particular, it's because, you know, if you are northern India and you say, where, where, is, where are the mountains? You say north, right? Because the Himalaya is north. So it's totally obvious that north means mountains going up. I up is north and down is south. But of course, if you're in China, it's the other way around. <laughs> you know, up is south. And so it's nothing intrinsic in, in, in going up, which is north or south. It just happened to be locally that situation. So the past and the future are similar. There's nothing intrinsic that distinguishes the past and the future, but we are like, you know, in the hills in the, uh, at the foot of the Himalaya. One direction looks special because that mountains are. And that's what makes us uh, the past special. There's one direction special, and that special direction is what we call the past. So, just to, uh, if the past is special, we but we also learn about the future and make predictions about new things based on observing patterns in the past, right? So, in that sense, isn't the past very deceptive? In uh, in that sense, like how can we? How can we trust patterns that happened in the past and expect them to play out in the future when, as you say, the past is, in a sense, fixed and kind of unrepeatable? So what do you think? How do we make sense of patterns and, you know, future hypotheses, so to say? Fantastic. This is exactly the question I've been working on for the last years. And besides doing white holes, <laughs> I've been working exactly on this question. And uh, um, in the book, I talk a little bit about that. And uh, it's far from obvious. It's, uh, uh, I think all these questions can be solved. Uh, they are very confusing. And I think one of the good things, one of the beautiful things is happening in modern physics is uh, we are disentangling this question. We're understanding um, why the past is different from the future. Uh, and why, as you say, uh, fixed past allows us to make predictions of all these kind of things. Um, the, in the third part of the book, I, I talk a little bit about that. I say what I think is going on, um, but it's, it's, it's more complicated. I, I'm working on, on, on that. Many of my recent papers are about that. And in fact, uh, uh, where is it? Tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow. Uh, I'm taking a plane going to New Mexico, where there's an institute of complexity in Santa Fe, uh, and I'm spending two weeks there discussing with the people exactly these kind of questions and give a series of lectures exactly on the questions that you mentioned. So I'm sure your next book would kind of get into and clarify some of these questions. Assuming I get sufficient clarity (laughs) for for presenting it in a way which I think is comprehensible. So we're kind of almost out of time, but I just wanted to put in one quick question that is, I, you are somebody who is studying white holes and loop quantum gravity and all these questions. In what is in in you know in the you know in the larger physics world, is this now a kind of mainstream idea that is now getting a lot of I mean more and more students and people and more research is oriented towards this question, or do you think uh, I mean there are other other theories? are more dominant. I'm trying to understand how big as a field of global research enterprise is are these questions that you are researching. 
they are attracting a lot of students. They're attracting a lot of colleagues. Uh, uh, has been growing uh, for, for for the last years. Uh, I would say uh, quantum gravity. Look, quantum gravity. Well, uh, the black to white hole transition is is relatively recent. It's being taken serious by astrophysicists, by cosmologists. So people are beginning to look at these things. Uh, the the quantum gravity, the loop quantum gravity uh, perspective, uh, it, there's a rather big community working on that, so conference with several hundred people, uh, but it's not the dominant thing. Um, and I would say things are changing, uh, probably not because we've been particularly good, but because uh, the main uh, sort of uh, alternative frame of mind and, 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 and direction with whom sometimes I... I discuss in my book uh, is the world of string theory and supersymmetry, and uh, uh, this is still dominant because you know many powerful old people now in the in, in big universities, uh, but it has had a lot of difficulties, uh, especially with confirmation. Uh, a lot of suggestions, uh, phenomena suggested by, by string theory, like supersymmetry, turn out to be false, or uh, the fact that the cosmological constant is negative. Uh, it's false, or the fact that uh, it's possible to make a little black hole at CERN colliding protons, uh, it turned out to be false. So uh, the number of uh, unsuccesses have been piling up, and uh, string theory was a big uh, promise in the 80s. Uh, it promised to be able to you know, derive the, all the parameters of the model, make us understand particle physics, why it's like that, why there are the particular particles. It, it hasn't worked. Now, this does not mean that it cannot work, uh, but the shine of string theory uh, some years ago, it's very much uh, down. And because of that, I, I am submerged by young people who say, I, I want to do quantum gravity. That, you see, uh, the difference is not two different solutions to the same question. It's different questions. Part of that world was motivated by finding the final theory of everything. I don't think it's the right question. Uh, we, who are we for finding the final theory? We know a little bit. We know a chunk of this, chunk of that. Quantum gravity is a much more specific problem. What happened to space and time where you cannot neglect quantum mechanics? Uh, what happened inside the black holes? Uh, what happened at Big Bang? So it's, these are more physical problems. So I think this, uh, the important for science is finding the right question. If you have the right question, the answers come. It's if you if you bark around the, the tree of the of, of too hard a question or too too early a question, you just turn out and go nowhere. Great. Thanks a lot, Professor. It was uh, it was wonderful uh, speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hindu on Books. You can now find the Hindus podcast such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 